Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Father, we thank you for your word. It is that lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, as we dive in today, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts through your word and through your spirit. Lord, we need you to open our eyes. Without you, we are blind. Lord, we need you to open our ears. Without you, we are deaf. Lord, we need you to give us life. Without you, we are dead. But through the work of your son, through the redemption that we have at the cross, you have given us eyes to see. You, you have opened our ears. You have made us alive. And so, Lord, in that we celebrate today. Lord, you've called us, you've, you've, you've placed us in this time, in this season. Lord, your word tells us that, that you appoint the times and the days and the places in which and when we would live. And so, Lord, it's not an accident that any of us are alive today in 2022 in San Antonio, Texas. Lord, this is part of your divine decree from eternity past. And Lord, you have saved us out of the world, but Lord, you've sent us also into the world, Lord, to be salt and to be light. And so as we spend time in your word, our prayer is that you would train us, that you would instruct us, that you would guide us, that you would help us, that you would show us how to live as your people in this world. You are the king you're the king of our lives. You're the king of our hearts. You are enthroned in our praises. But you are also the king of the nations. You are king of this world. And so, Lord, help us to, to live as your people, to be faithful unto you in this year, in this season, in this era of church history. Lord, that the generations that come after us would look back on us and say they were faithful to their God in their day. That's our heart's desire today. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, last week we kicked off our sermon series for the summer. We just finished Philippians. We spent 30 some odd weeks in the book of Philippians and for the summer, we're not jumping into a book of the Bible, which we typically do, but we're doing a thematic series for the summer. And this summer, we're considering, from the Word of God, the major social issues of our day, the major social issues that are hot-button issues in our culture, issues like sexuality and abortion and homosexuality and racism, you know, all of the, the really fun and encouraging stuff. You know, we're, we're diving into those topics because it's very important for us as God's people to be well-trained in what the Word of God says on these issues because we are bombarded with them 24-7 in this world and the culture that we are living in. Amen. 
And so last week we kicked off this series and I laid for you a foundation on how Christians should approach these issues. And if you weren't here last week, I, I, I strongly encourage you to go back, to go on our website, to go on our YouTube and watch last week's sermon. If you missed last week, you, you really need that foundational Peace. And even if you were here last week, I would encourage you to, to listen to it again because I laid a foundation on how we as believers in Christ should approach all of these issues. And what we saw last week, just by way of getting us all on the same page, what we saw last week is that we live in a world that is in conflict. On, on nearly every issue, there's this deep divide uh, between two different parties, two different worldviews. We live in a world, we live in a nation, we live in a culture that is full of conflict on, on nearly every point. And we looked at last week the source of the conflict from John chapter 6, and what we discovered is that the conflict is not political. I'm not talking about political issues. I'm not talking about a political conflict. I'm not talking about issues of left versus right or red versus blue or Republican versus Democrat. That is not what we are talking about. But what we looked at last week is that the conflict is actually theological. It is a theological conflict. It plays itself out, unfortunately, in the political arena because, by and large, the church has retreated from the culture. We looked at last week this issue of God's authority. Does God have authority in our world, or do we, as human beings, have autonomy? Are we autonomous beings? Who, who do not sit under the authority of God? Do we as human beings, do we self-identify? Do we define life on our own, own terms? Or is it that Christ is king? And that he is on the throne? And that he has revealed his will to us through his word? And through his law? That we are a part of his creation? And so we see that the world is in conflict over this issue. Who is king? Is it me or is it Christ? And we looked at if Christ is who he said he is, the bread of life, the tree of life, the, the true vine, the way, the truth, and the life, if he is the, the good shepherd, the light of the world, if he is who he said he was, that there is only one response that is acceptable and that is full and total and complete submission to Christ as king, we traced the history of this idea of autonomy, that this idea of autonomy, this philosophy of autonomy, that we are separate from God, it, 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 it started in the Garden of Eden with Satan telling Eve that you can be like God, that you don't have to live under God's authority, that you don't have to live under God's rule and reign, but you can be a God yourself determining good and evil for yourself. That that is where this idea, this philosophy of autonomy came from. We looked at last week how it, it really came to a head at the Tower of Babel. As God had told humanity to go into the world and to multiply, that the world would be filled of, with his glory, the world would be full of his image bearers who worship him. 
But instead, humanity decided to to not live for the glory of God, but to build a name for themselves. That they would ascend unto heaven, not on God's terms, but on their own terms. This philosophy of Babel, that God came and confused them and dispersed them into the nations of the world. And we saw how Babel, that philosophy became manifest in Babylon, and even to the book of Revelation that that philosophy is still present in the world today. We looked at how do we as Christians, how do we live faithfully? What does faithfulness look like? How should a Christian think? How should a Christian respond to the issues of our day? We concluded with the idea that we should follow as Christians. I know this is a groundbreaking idea. But that as Christians, we should follow Christ. I know that is shocking to, to you. I know, I'm, it's like, where did you come up with that? What an amazing idea. But nevertheless, that's the bottom line. As Christians, we follow Christ. And so what did Jesus do when he dealt with the social issues of his day? We ought to do the same. And we see that what Jesus did is, well, Jesus was a Bible teacher. When questioned about social issues in Jesus' day, what did he do? He opened the Bible. He went to the Old Testament. And he called people to repent of their sins. Now today, I want to look at, I want to examine the issue of origins. The issue of origins. How did the universe begin? Where do we come from? Where does life come from? Where did humanity come from? The issue of origins. Now, you might not think that this is a, an issue that is, is still up for debate. You may think that this issue has been settled. Uh, you would be wrong in thinking that. Uh, th- this issue is, in fact, I would say at the core of the conflict that we see in our culture. You might think that beliefs about origins are disconnected from the social conflicts of our culture, but nothing could be further from the truth. What you believe about origins, what you believe about how we got here and where we came from is fundamental to the way that you view the world and the way that you will live your life. So what did Jesus teach about origins? Again, we follow Christ, amen? We follow Christ. Well, what did Jesus teach? What did he teach about where we come from? How we got here? Well, much to the dismay of many Christians, even, Jesus believed the Bible. I know that's shocking, but Jesus believed the Old Testament. He, he actually believed it was true. He actually believed that those events happened in history and that they had an authority, that God's word, that the Old Testament is authoritative in our lives. And so Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 1 on this issue of origins. When, when, when asked about a, a social issue of his day, Jesus takes the people right to Genesis 1. Right to the first book of the Bible, and he, he quotes it as authoritative, as true, as historical, as a real event. Not as allegory or some sort of spiritual reality. No, as, as that it really happened. 
And so flip with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. What did Jesus believe about origins, where we come from, how we got here? He believed exactly what this says. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now I want to jump down to verse 26. The sixth day of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Where does mankind come from? Come from God. Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Where do we come from? Where did Jesus think that we come from? Jesus thinks that we came from God. Jesus thinks that the universe comes from God. Jesus thinks that God is spirit, and that God exists outside of space and time, and that he spoke space and time into being. That God exists outside of nature and from outside of space, time, and nature. There was a time when nothing existed but God. And that everything exists, that exists today was brought into being by the decree and the declaration of God. This is what Jesus believed. This, this wasn't a question for him. He, he wasn't sitting around wondering about this. And if you'll go with me now to John chapter 1... It brings into greater detail why Jesus in no way whatsoever questioned the issue of origins. John chapter 1. In verse 1. John begins his gospel the exact same way that the Bible begins. The exact same way that the universe began. Showing that that what God is doing in Christ is he is recreating the world. that, That he is fixing what we had broken in Christ. John 1, 1, in the beginning... So so echoing that creation account of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, 
The Word is a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. So again, this issue of light and darkness right at the beginning, light shining forth into the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, John tells us who this word is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's literally tabernacled among us, set up a tent among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Who is this Word? This Word is Jesus Christ. And through Christ, it says, all things were made and that without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the Word by which God spoke the universe into existence. Jesus is not just, as the famous bumper sticker says, a Jewish carpenter. Jesus is the creator God of the universe. Amen. And he entered into human history. The word became flesh. The son of God came from heaven to earth to reveal the father to us, to show us the truth, to bring us grace. But he never questioned this issue of origins. Why? Because he is the originator of all things. He, he is the one that by, through him and by him, all things were created. That life in him was life. Everything that lives today and moves today and draws breath today draws it from Christ. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Life comes from Christ. All life comes from Christ. Colossians 1, we won't take time to, to turn there this morning. I just want to read a verse from there quickly. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Christ, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We were created for him. We were created for his pleasure. We were created for his glory. We were not only created by him, but we were created for him, for his good pleasure. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Three times in this passage, this short verse, it tells us all things were created by him, 
All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. Without Christ, there would be no universe. Without Christ, there would be no creation. Without Christ, there would be no nothing. Without Christ, there would be no existence. The fact that you are here right now proves that Jesus Christ is real. That Jesus Christ is alive today. That he is not dead because in him all things hold together. Now, this is the Bible's view. This is Jesus' view on origins. Where we come from. How we got here. What is the source of life? Now, is this the commonly accepted view of origins today? If you ask any random person on the street, where do we come from? How did we get here? Will, will they say, well, you got to go to Genesis chapter 1. You got to go to John chapter 1. You got to go to Colossians chapter 1. Yeah. Is that what people on the street would tell you today? If you go into a college classroom on biology, is that what you'll hear today? That God is the creator, that he is king of kings and lord of lords, that we are his creatures made in his image to bring him glory, to worship him, to obey him, to love him, to be redeemed by him. No, what is the common, current, popular view on origins? Come on. Right, the Big Bang, evolution, right, that, that's, that's the... The, the commonly accepted and commonly taught view, Big Bang and evolution. That creation, Big Bang says, creation is uncaused. That, that there's no intelligent design, there's no creator behind creation. That there was a time when nothing existed, and then all of a sudden, nothing decided to blow up. And everything springs forth from nothing. That life comes from nowhere, uncaused. That's the Big Bang, uncaused. And that after, every, after nothing exploded and began to expand, eventually all of the stardust and the galaxies formed after billions and billions of years, that there was some sort of soup on planet Earth that one day decided to come alive and wake up and... Eventually, that soup was floating and cells began to multiply. And over billions and billions of years, those cells turned into fish. And one day, those fish decided to go for a walk and came up on the dry land. And billions and billions and billions of years later, and now we have monkeys. Billions and billions and billions of years later, now we have us. That, that, is, that is what is taught predominantly as science in our classrooms today. Now, the question is, the question we really ha I, I want to answer today is why is this taught? Why is this accepted as norm and taught as irre irrefutable fact? 
Now, if you ask someone why they believe this, they will say, I believe it because of science. Science, I believe in science. You know, like, uh, what's that guy's name on, uh, what's that movie that I love so much? Nacho Libre, right? What's his friend's name? Esqueleto, right. When they're about to go into their first wrestling match and Nacho Libre finds out that Esqueleto has not been baptized. He says, why? He says, well, I believe in science. And this is what people today would say. Well, I believe in science. I don't believe those myths. I don't believe those fables. I don't believe that what the Bible teaches. The Bible is not inerrant, inspired, authoritative. The Bible is not the word of God. The Bible is the flawed word of man, and it is full of contradictions and myth and fables. I believe in science. But the people who would tell you that are telling you something that is not true because there is no scientific evidence for uncaused, unguided origins. There's no scientific evidence whatsoever for uncaused, big bane, unguided evolution origins. Why? Well, because the scientific method requires observation. The scientific method requires observation. In sixth grade, we were taught the scientific method, the five steps of the scientific method. And one of those steps is observation. You have to formulate a hypothesis. You have to set up a, 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 a test. You have to set up a, an experiment. You have to observe it. You have to record results. You have to alter your hypothesis if necessary. But observation is necessary for science to take place. So... Any discussions of origins will be, by definition, never scientific. Discussions on origins are never scientific because no one observed, well, except for one observed, the creation of the universe. And the one who observed it, in fact, the one by whom it was all made and created, he is the one who came from heaven to earth, lived a life without sin, died on the cross to redeem us, rose on the third day in victory, ascended into heaven, and rules as the king of the universe. He was there, and he says, you want to know how we got here? Genesis chapter one. In fact, the, 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 the fact that or the, 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 the issue of origins will never be scientific, and, and, the, and those who claim that they believe in science versus revelation or science versus the Bible, in fact, what we find is that the opposite is true. The more that science and technology advance, the more that our tools to study creation are refined, what we find is more evidence 
that the universe came into being through intelligent design. The, the more our tools are refined, the more our technology advances, the more we study God's creation at the atomic and subatomic level, what we find is not less evidence for a creator, but more evidence for a creator. And at this point, the evidence is overwhelming. Francis Collins is a world-renowned scientist. He's the one who mapped the human genome. He received uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor from President Obama. This is what he says about human origins, the origins of the universe. He, he says this, and I quote, The existence of the universe as we know it rests on a knife's edge of improbability. The Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force outside of space and time could have done that. Altogether, he says, there are 15 physical constants in nature. And the chance that all of these constants would take on the values necessary to result in a stable universe capable of sustaining complex life forms is almost infinitesimal. And yet these are the exact parameters that we observe. In some, he says, our universe is wildly improbable. Collins began his study mapping out the human genome as an atheist, but through his discovery of what was in the DNA of mankind, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Through science. Through science. Some of the constants that we see in our universe that he talks about, that we, we, our universe rests on a knife's edge of improbability, is the rate of the expansion of the universe. If, if that was altered, even to the most infinitesimal degree, creation would have, the universe would have collapsed back in on itself. The gravitational force of the universe, if it was adjusted just one part in 10 to the 40th power, that's 10 with 40 zeros behind it, creation would not exist, would not be able to sustain life. If you adjust the distance from the earth to the sun, by the, by the smallest amount of detail, if we were any closer, we would burn up. If we were any further away, we would freeze. The tilt of the earth axis, if you adjust that. The distance between the stars and our galaxy, if they were adjusted even to the slightest of, of degree, our, our, our galaxy would not sustain life on earth. Jupiter and Saturn, their distance from the earth... Is, is critical for the earth to be able to sustain life. If you look at Jupiter, what you'll find on Jupiter is craters larger than the size of earth, that Jupiter exists in our galaxy as a cosmic shield with its gravitational force pulling in everything that would come and try to destroy earth that's flying around out there in space. This is not an accident. When we look at the intricacy 
and the genius and the masterful construction of the universe, it leads us to one conclusion, that there is a creator, that there is a mind behind creation, that it's not uncaused and unguided. If you want to research this further, you can study the fine-tuning of the universe. So those who declare, I believe in science, they don't believe in science because truly science declares that there is a creator God. Truly science declares that we are not here by accident. And truly without God, there is no science. There is no science without God. Without God, there is no math, arithmetic. Without God, there are no laws of logic and reason. Without God, there is nothing. It's science that tells us only life begets life. Life comes from somewhere. It's science that tells us that. Life does not spring forth from non-life. So the claim to believe in science over against the word of God is actually an anti-scientific claim. It is a statement that is in conflict with itself. All of the attempts to argue against the existence of God are like a child who is slapping his father in the face. The only reason he can reach his father to slap him in the face is because the father holds him in his arms. That all of humanity is being held up, sustained right now by Christ. To even make an argument against the existence of God, you have to lean upon Christ to be able to do it. You have to borrow from his creation to be able to do it. You have to use the mind he gave you to be able to do it. One of my favorite quotes on origin uh, come from a debate with a pastor named Douglas Wilson. He was debating an atheist. The atheist was saying, how can you go to the Bible as your source of authority? The Bible teaches that we weren't allowed to, you people, God didn't allow people to eat shellfish. In the Old Testament, it says, thou shalt not eat all these things and these dietary requirements. And so he's trying to, this, this atheist is trying to disprove the law of God by saying there's ridiculous things in there. And Douglas Wilson, he says, yeah, in our history, the history of redemption, there was a time where God's people were restricted from eating certain foods, and one of those foods was shellfish. And he says, you believe that our ancestors used to be shellfish. <laughs> so yes, we, we didn't used to be able to eat shellfish, but you believe we used to be shellfish. Which, which of those is more improbable? But this doesn't answer the question. This doesn't answer the question of why are these theories that are so improbable that there is so that, that there is no evidence for big bang, big bang uncaused evolution unguided. Why are they so wildly and widely accepted? Psalm 19, what we began with this morning, the heavens declare the glory 
of God. That speech pours out from them. Existence itself testifies to the fact that there is a creator. Being here right now, being testifies to the fact that we come from a being. That the creation pours forth speech and, and it goes to the ends of the earth. But why? Why do people still deny that there is a creator? Romans chapter 1, if you'll go with me there quickly, Romans 1. I told you we're going to look at a lot of scripture today. We're really getting to the heart of what I want you to take away today. Romans chapter 1. I don't know if you noticed, but we were in Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1. We're now in Romans 1. If I had an extra hour today, I'd take you to 1 Corinthians 1. These are foundational truths to understand Christianity, to understand the gospel, you must pass through these truths. You must hold to these truths. You, you can't go beyond this without first grasping this. If, if you don't understand this, creator and creation, you won't understand the gospel at all. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek, salvation is available to the whole world. Amen. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how you grew up. It doesn't matter your past. The power of God to salvation in the gospel is for all mankind. For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. We're called to live by faith in the Son of God, in the Word became flesh. Verse 18, for the wrath of God, God's justice, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. I'm, I'm answering the question, why? Why with no evidence are these, what I consider to be preposterous and ridiculous, self-refuting theories, why are they so widely adhered to, accepted, and taught when heaven declares to us but they were not. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, here's the key, suppress the truth. Why is Big Bang and evolution the prevailing thought in our culture today? Because in unrighteousness, people suppress the truth.
Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. That's humanity. What can be known about God is plain to them because, Psalm 19, because God has shown it to them. So all of humanity has been shown by God because we are image bearers of God, that we are his creation. All of humanity knows that there is a God. There is no such thing as an atheist. Truly. There are those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There are those who are, may even walk in self-deception, but they know at the core of their being because God has shown it to all mankind. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There's no excuse for unbelief. Because God has poured forth general revelation about him as a creator from the beginning of time. Verse 21, for although they, and again, he's talking about unrighteous humanity, those who do not believe in God. For although they knew God, we all know God. We all know the creator. We all know this God as image bearers of him. Now, we don't all know the gospel, which brings our God into complete and total focus, but every single human being who has ever lived knows this God because we are created in his image. We live under his law. We are guided by conscience. We are guided by him. We know God. For though they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We'll continue Romans 1 as we get further on in the series. God has revealed himself to all of humanity, has done it through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. But unrighteous men suppress the truth in their hearts. What can be known about God, they push it down through their unrighteous acts and unrighteous deeds. It's like when you go swimming and have you ever had like a big beach ball in the pool? Have you ever tried to keep that underwater? That's what trying to believe in this stuff is like. Everywhere you go, everywhere you look, every experience you have declares to you that there is a God. This is why God declares in Psalm 14:1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So unbelief is not the result of a lack of evidence. The evidence is everywhere, literally everywhere. 
The evidence is beyond measure. The evidence is incalculable. The evidence for God, for your creator, permeates all of existence. But the reason why these unscientific issues are so readily accepted is because of sin, because of rebellion against God, because of the desire for autonomy to not be responsible, to not be uh, under God, but to be a God unto ourselves. I want to take you to one last passage today. It's in Luke chapter 11, just one verse. I want you to see this with your own eyes, Luke chapter 11. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Luke chapter 11, verse 23 Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. Those who deny God are actively suppressing the truth of God that is in their own hearts. They're doing so as image bearers of God, as God's own creation. And they're doing so in rebellion to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. They use unrighteousness. They use sin to try to drown out their own conscience. They, they use all sort of numbing methods to, to try to, to drown out the voice of creation that preaches to them every single day. But hear me in this, and this is the issue. There is no one, not one single person alive on planet Earth who is neutral. Who is neutral? You see, the scientist claims, the, the educator claims, the professor at college claims, the, the, the teacher in school claims. They say, well, we, we just believe in science. We, we are not biased. We are neutral. And Jesus says, no. Either you're with me or you are against me. There is no neutrality. You are either receive the truth of God, you receive what's in general revelation, you receive what is in special revelation through the word of God, or you reject it, but there is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. The scientists the, the, who believes in evolution, they say we are neutral, we are not religious, we are unbiased. We don't, we, we don't come with preconceived notion, and that is a lie. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. And they start with the preconceived notion that there is no God. And so it shouldn't surprise any single one of us when they rule out God, which is the most obvious fact in the whole universe, and they say it can't be that. It should not surprise us when they end up at a faulty conclusion when the theory they come up with is wrong. But they are not neutral. I was preached to, when I went to, to secular university, I was preached to every single day that the university is a place of neutrality. We're just here to, to find the truth. We're just here to, to look at different ideas and, and weigh them out. 
We are neutral. We are unbiased. The Christian, those who believe the Bible, you are, you are so blinded by your bias. I remember one time in a computer class, I was taking a computer class, and the professor, she went on this tirade against the Apostle Paul. Just this vitriol, this venom, this hate for the Word of God. And I'm sitting there like, what does this have to do with Microsoft Word? I don't completely understand the connection here. No one is neutral. We are either for Christ or we are against Christ. Sinful humanity does not need more information. Sinful humanity needs a resurrection. We must be born again by the Spirit of God. Without that, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is why the Big Bang and evolution are the prevailing thought of origins in our day. Not because of evidence, but because of unbelief. Because of rebellion against God, because of sinful creatures who want to live in this, this, this myth of neutrality, this myth of autonomy. But no one is neutral and no one is unbiased. And hear me this, Christian, we should not try to be. To try to be unbiased is to be against Christ. To, to, to lay aside our presuppositions about who Christ is and what he has done and to try to enter into some sort of neutral arena with the unbeliever, to enter into their unbelief, but to leave the gospel behind is to be against Christ. It is the power of the gospel that brings salvation. So when, when, we, are, when we are preached at by the unbeliever that we are biased and that we are not neutral, we say, that is correct. We are not trying to be. We are Christians. We believe in Christ. We believe his word. And also, we believe in science. Truly. Truly. Claiming to be unbiased is actually self-deception. Unfortunately, hear me in this, unfortunately, many Christians too often believe the atheists and their claims of neutrality. Too often Christians believe the atheists and their claims of neutrality, and they take the atheist at their word instead of believing Christ and taking him at his word. If you've ever believed that secular culture is neutral... That the, the scientist and the atheist are neutral in their pursuit of truth? If you've ever believed that, you've believed the lie over the truth. Amen. Jesus says, you are either for me or you are against me. We live in a culture where people put themselves, their faith, not in Christ, but in themselves, in their own intellect, and their own pride, and their own arrogance, and they refuse to come to Christ because Christ requires humility. To come to the cross, you must humble yourself. You do not come to God proud, and you do not come to God on your own terms. We come on his terms. We come to the cross. 
we humble ourselves. I want to finish today by talking about why this matters. Why does any of this matter? Why does it matter what you believe about origins? Well, to quote one of the priests of the secular atheist religion, it is a religion, it is a religion, to quote one of their most famous priests, Richard Dawkins, he says, and I quote, the universe has at bottom no design, therefore no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. This is the truth about the atheist worldview. If you, do, if you remove the creator, the conclusion is that there is no purpose to life. There is no meaning to life. If there is no creator who has issued his decree and his law, declaring what is good and what is evil as an expression, as a, as a revelation of his nature and character, then by definition there is no evil, there is no good. There's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. To the atheist, what happened a few weeks ago in Uvalde does not matter. The atheist has no right to declare anything as evil because there is no God in their worldview. This is quoting their scholar. The conclusion, if there is no God, is that nothing matters. It's simply time and chance acting on matter. We're all just bags of flesh. We're just meat. Nothing matters. This is the truth about the atheist worldview. Uvalde, they cannot declare as evil. They can't declare anything as evil. Auschwitz, it's just survival of the fittest in the atheist worldview. Why does it matter what you believe? Oh, it matters a lot about origins. Because without God, there is no basis for morality, right and wrong. There's no basis for justice. There's no basis for good or evil. There's no basis for anything without God. And what we see today in our culture is a culture that has been indoctrinated with false systems of origins reinforcing their unbelief. We do not see belief in God in our culture. Our culture does not believe in a God and a creator who gives us his law, who has divine justice. So our culture has no ultimate standard of right and wrong. Our culture has no standard of morality. Therefore, anything goes. So our culture truly cannot condemn anything as wrong. That is the logical conclusion of atheism. This is why we see the places where this has become the most systemic is you can just walk into any store you want and take anything off the shelf and nobody can say anything about it. One of their other priests, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he puts it this way, we're all just stardust. We're all just stardust. Nothing matters. It's blind and pitiless indifference. Listen, if that is true, and truly nothing matters. Truly there's no purpose and there's no meaning if there's no objective standard of right and wrong. 
The atheist has no ability whatsoever to make any moral claims to say that someone should or should not do something. So to, to, to condemn something, the atheist has to borrow from Christianity to say that something is right or wrong. They have to stand on the foundation of Christ. They have to be an image bearer. But what we're seeing in our culture today as this has become systemic is that our culture is rapidly heading over the cliff, descending into utter chaos because you will either have Christ or you will have chaos. That's it. Things don't fall apart overnight. We've been chipping away at the foundation for a long time. But the longer you hammer away at a foundation, if you do it long enough, eventually the house will crumble and we are living on borrowed moral capital of previous generations. This is not only true of nations and cultures and societies, but this is also true of individuals and families. The family that does not build itself on the rock of the word of God, on the revelation of Christ, will crumble and fall. The family that does, the individual that does, will leave a lasting legacy of faith for the future generations. The issue of origins is not only about where we come from, it's also about where we're going. If we came from nowhere, we're going nowhere. That's what most people believe. When you die, that's it. But there's no ultimate justice at the end of history. There's no judgment. There's no heaven. There's no hell. This, of course, was immortalized by one of the worship leaders of the atheist secular religion, John Lennon, one of their famous worship leaders. In his famous song, Imagine, which is the atheist anthem. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. We don't have to imagine it anymore. (laughs) We see it every single day. And it's not a dream, but it's a nightmare. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You will not have peace without the Prince of Peace. You throw out the Prince of Peace, you do not have peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, that's socialism. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. We don't, so he, here he's saying we don't live for the image and the glory of God, we live for our own glory, making a name for our own selves, for mankind. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. 
The world will only live as one if Christ is king. The world will only have peace when we have the Prince of Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, above us is not only sky, but is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is something below us, and it is hell. And at the end of history, there is justice, ultimate justice. And we will all stand before God on that day. And Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again for our sins, he is the one who will sit on that throne and judge the people of the world. And we will either be found in him, clothed in a righteousness that is not our own, or we will be found in our sins and in our rebellion. God right now offers us grace, a moment to turn to Christ, a moment to forsake our idolatry, our autonomy, all of our myths of neutrality, and to submit ourselves and to bow our knee before the King of all creation, Jesus Christ, the one who is returning to judge the living and the dead. And so when all is said and done, I'm sticking with the one who died and rose again. Amen. It really doesn't matter to me what the experts say. We live in the cult of the expert. These nameless, faceless people that get everything wrong all the time. And I don't know how they got the title of expert, but I'm living with the one who defeated death. I'm sticking with what his word says. Amen. So let me implore you, do not be neutral. There is no neutrality. Do not believe those who claim to be neutral. Do not fall into the trap of trying to be neutral because Jesus commands us not to be. You are either for me or against me says Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I do not beg you to give Jesus a chance with your life. Jesus is the one who gives us a chance. We're not the one who puts him on trial. No. He's the one who calls us to repent who calls us to faithfulness, who calls us to abandon all of these philosophies of the world and to submit our lives to him. And so as we come to the table today, we do so in faith. We do so as an expression of our faith. We do so in repentance, renouncing all claims to autonomy, renouncing all claims to self-sufficiency, and proclaiming with our supper that Christ is our only hope, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we fully and totally depend upon him for our righteousness. I invite the worship team to come. I invite you to stand, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. 
Lord, we believe your word. We believe that the universe came into existence in obedience to your word. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us by your word, that you would cleanse us by your word, and that you would uproot from us and out of us every ounce of unbelief. And that we would hear that conscience that you have placed in us, that screams to us, and that we would not suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but that we would embrace the truth, that we would embrace you, Jesus, as the truth, the full personification of truth itself. It's in your name we pray. Amen.